0: Welcome to Unpacking Ideas, the podcast where each episode I invite on a new guest to help me unpack an influential piece of writing from the past in order to make it more accessible in the present. Today we are looking at Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Frankl was a Jewish Austrian psychiatrist, writer, and existential psychotherapist who lived from 1905 to 1997. He is most known for being the founder of logotherapy, which is a type of humanistic, meaning based psychotherapy, and for this book, Man's Search for Meaning, which has sold over 10 million copies and details his life and experience as a Jewish prisoner in the concentration camps during World War II. Today, helping me unpack this book was Barbara Spadero. We dug deep into Frankel's ideas on the psychology of Jewish prisoners during their time in the concentration camps. Feelings of shock, apathy, emotional numbing, resignation to fate, as well as his thoughts on logotherapy, nihilism, the existential vacuum, eugenic neuroses versus psychological neuroses, finding meaning through suffering, paradoxical intention, free will, and of course, the meaning of life. This was a very enlightening, albeit very emotional conversation as you can imagine, given the subject matter. But uh, I really enjoy talking with Barbara, hearing her perspective, and I just love this book. This is one that I've read several times and I feel like I get something new every time I revisit these ideas. So I hope that our conversation helps shine a new light on these ideas for you too. And here it is, my conversation with Barbara on Man's Search for Meaning. So the piece is in two parts. The first part, he's kind of taking a look at the psychology of the prisoners in the concentration camp and kind of recounting his experience in the concentration camp. And then the second part is called Logotherapy in a Nutshell, which is his uh, his type of meaning-based therapy that he developed. And apparently, I-, I learned that that second part was added in later, and it didn't appear in the original uh, editions and it just kind of got tagged on in the, um, like when they made the English translations. I also learned that this this first section where he's recounting his experience in the camp and kind of maybe trying to make sense of it, he wrote that within the course of, I think it was like five days.
1: Well, you know, I wish I had a nickel for every time I hear someone say, this author wrote this in five days. Faulkner <laughs> 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 wrote, you know, the, the Sound and the Fury in five days. Wow, yeah. how did you do that? He said, genius. Um, I think, though, that um, this does seem to me to be, while, while it is uneven, I would say, and, and it has the characteristics of something that would flow out of a person who really needed to unburden himself, mm. at the same time, it's very carefully edited. So yeah. so, yeah. So there there are two things at work here. And I appreciate the editing, for sure.
0: <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. No, Absolutely maybe we can start by kind of going through the first, the first section. He kind of says up front, the question he's trying to answer. Uh, He says, quote, how was everyday life in a concentration, concentration camp reflected in the mind of the average prisoner. And he then kind of says a few like possible challenges to answering this question. I mean, the first one is, you know, he's one person. So, It's hard to generalize one person's subjective experience to what every prisoner was going through during this time. I think that's one of kind of challenge. And then the other one he says is that a lot of the Jewish concentration camp survivors who made it out just felt like there's no point in talking about it because the people who experienced it already know what it was like and the people who didn't experience it they could never begin to understand even if like even if I told you you couldn't begin to understand. That was kind of the feeling of a lot of people.
1: Yeah, well, I'm sure that's right. Um, I had one um, section highlighted here where it's right in, it, right under experiences in a concentration camp. I think it's like one, two, three, three paragraphs in. Mm. he says it's easy for the outsider to get the wrong conception of camp life. Mm-hmm. because the outsiders are overwhelmed with sorrow for these people who are suffering. And and yet, to look at it from the point of view of the people doing the suffering, it seems to me that he was saying that a lot of the suffering, he wanted to talk about exactly what that suffering consisted of. And mm-hmm. um, the first thing he mentions is that people are struggling against each other. So it wasn't this romantic sort of, Let's hold hands together and suffer sublimely. But yeah. that people were, yeah, that they were in each other's spaces and, and and it made for conflict. And one thing I do like about this is that immediately he brings in the idea that there was authority in the camp at, at various levels. And he talks about the Kapos um, who were actually, I guess, Jews. Right. Yeah. So that- yeah, so that, that right away is interesting, you know, that he's not just making it about poor us, but that he's showing that there was a structure, a social structure there, and that people cooperated in various, cooperated or collaborated in various ways.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's something that kind of runs throughout the course of this whole piece is him in some ways saying, you know, there is something admirable about the people who Remained kind of altruistic and loving throughout these hard times. But he's very careful to say that most people didn't. And he also says, like, if, unless you lived through this, there's no way that you can judge people for kind of, you know, becoming uh, very egoistic in, in this like extreme circumstance where it, you know, kind of becomes dog eat dog. And I think Frankel also at no point throughout this says like, I am one of the good ones. I'm one of the noble people who, you know, remained altruistic, remained upright through all of this. And there's a passage that I think captures that really well, what we're talking about. This is on page five of my translation. He says, quote, on average, only those prisoners could keep alive who after years of trekking from camp to camp had lost all scruples in their fight for existence. They were prepared to use every means, honest, and otherwise, even brutal forced theft and betrayal of their friends in order to save themselves, we who have come back by the aid of many lucky chances or miracles, uh, whatever one may choose to call them, we know the best of us did not return
1: right fair enough
0: and I think that's really in- interesting thing to put up front because you know he says the best of us did not return he's kind of he's kind of implying there you know I was not the uh the selfless martyr at the, in the concentration camp who was, you know, giving up my bowl of soup for the person who needed it more. Um, he's kind of implying he was he was among the, the people who was just looking out for number one. But it's also interesting because then a lot of the later book, which we'll get into, he, he kind of sings the praises of the people who did kind of hold to their morals throughout all of this. Yeah. So he, I, I don't know. For the way I read it, at least, he doesn't really give us a definitive answer of like who was right.
1: Right. He doesn't. Except that at the very end, he starts to moralize more. And I, of course, we'll go through this slowly. But it seems to me at the end, you're hearing a different voice. And that's not the voice of uh, everybody had to do what they had to do. It was more the voice of like, if you really wanted to. Uh, if you really wanted to not succumb to this, you could. And and I think that that's the, that's the voice that a lot of people hear and they ignore this part,
0: but I like. Yeah. This part. <laughs> no, I, I think, I think you're right. And and I think it is interesting that it's like one of the first things uh, in the book. Well, cool. So maybe we can go through these, uh, these three phases of camp life that he kind of laid out. Uh, the first one this is the period following the prisoners' uh, admission to camp and he said the the prevailing feeling in this stage was one of shock and denial and he also tells a story here about like entering Auschwitz on the train and how there was this kind of gasp uh, as soon as they the the Jews in the and the trains realized where they were but he says that that gasp was short-lived and it was quickly followed by what he calls the delusion of reprieve
1: yeah so like that
0: yeah which is uh he says it's a phenomenon in psychiatry where a a prisoner who is um sentenced to death the moment before their execution has this fleeting feeling or intuition that they're going to be free or that they're going to get out of it somehow Uh, and he says that that's how he definitely felt of like oh you know this isn't actually going to be all that all that bad or I'll I'll be able to get out of this somehow
1: right Um, you you know you can understand that because (laughs) it takes a little while to get used to your current situation even when it's good Mm. Uh, but Victor Hugo wrote a, a story about a Man Condemned to Death. Did you ever read that? I forget.
0: No, I haven't.
1: What it's called, but it was very good. And, and it examines his state of mind throughout mm. and, and how, you know, there are times when he's just like, this isn't going to happen. I'm, I'm out of here. Mm. Um, but I think what struck me at, as people going through the suffering, they're having these delusions, they're fighting to come up to speed with the current situation. And one of my notes says, at this point, I think my capacity to remember would have been destroyed, too. How do people remember what happened to them? I would, <laughs> I would have been gibbering. <laughs> yeah, in mm-hmm. other words, I would have been so emotionally, um, you know, at odds with myself that I think not only would I be delusional about, you know, being happy looking forward, but I think that I wouldn't even be able to process it to the extent that I would be able to get in touch with it. I would, it's on the ceiling, I guess is the, it is Mm. the expression.
0: Yeah. Well, and he does, uh, he does say kind of towards the end of the first section that once a lot of the prisoners made it out of camp, like the whole thing just felt like a nightmare and they almost couldn't uh, imagine how they had made it through. And he also says something in the second section kind of along those lines too. Um, because this second phase of camp life, this is once the prisoner has gotten used to, uh, or I guess not gotten used to, that's probably the wrong way of saying it. But after they had been in the camp for some time, there's this period of just apathy. He says, quote, in a few days, the prisoner passed from the first to the second phase, the phase of relative apathy in which he achieved a kind of emotional death. Apart from the already described reactions, the newly arrived prisoners experienced the tortures of the most painful emotions, all of which he tried to deaden. And he even goes on to say that sometimes they were punished by the guards for experiencing any kind of emotion. Like uh, he, he tells a story about working in the latrines and having like, you know, human feces splash onto them. And if at any point the, the Jews showed any face of disgust or tried to wipe it off, they would be beaten by the by the guards.
1: You know, if the prisoners are undergoing this, you, you know, you have to wonder what the people who were able to go home at night were experiencing. Because that's the other thing that I just can't figure out is how you could work in a place like this
0: mm.
1: and. Then go home and sit down to dinner with your wife. I mean, I, I you have to be a real monster. I think, which is why people did really think that the Germans were monsters. You know, because they could handle this. But I think the fact is that a lot of people couldn't handle it. That it was just that they were subjected to the same kind of horror, only in a different uh, form than the um, than the prisoners.
0: Yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm sure there had to be some kind of similar uh emotional numbing happening on the part of the a lot of the guards. But he, he also says kind of at the end, one thing that happened amongst the guards. He says like only a, a small percentage of them he thinks were true sadists. But of that small percent, those were the ones tasked with all of the like really horrific jobs that you know, maybe the guards with the stronger conscience didn't want to do. And he says a similar thing happened with the capos, which I don't know if we've already defined cap- at what a capo is, but a capo is essentially a, uh, a Jewish prisoner who was given some jobs to do around the camp. And with those jobs kind of earned themselves a little bit of, you know, relative status in terms of maybe, you know, the, these Jewish prisoners were in charge of dishing out the soup uh, during the mealtime. But yeah, he says similarly, the, the, the Jews who were kind of promoted, if we want to call it that to being a capo were a lot of times ones whose temperament kind of inclined them to be a little more sadistic or uh, heartless and that the ones that weren't quickly lost that position.
1: Well, that makes sense. You know, I think that um, I, I was, uh, I forget where I read this, but initially when the, the Germans went through Poland, they were just shooting the Jews and, and putting them in mass graves. Mm. But they had to stop that because the soldiers couldn't take it. Mm. So um, then they decided to mechanize it more. And in a way, they were allowing this sort of hierarchy of, umNzimen uh, <laughs> to evolve so that people could actually do these jobs so so in a way that's that's pretty that's pretty crazy right there when you think about it um, my ballet teachers and this is also going back a long time were both in concentration camps um, they were Polish though um, and they were in work camps um, and they got out later after the war and then came to the United States. But I did notice that uh, Mr. Novak never really wanted to talk about his situation in the camp. And and it always gave me this feeling that maybe he had decided to do a job like you're describing, a capo, uh, you know. And yet there's just so much guilt attached to that Mm. because it seemed like a compromise, you know, whereas his his wife who was in a different situation um, taken to a different camp. She was, um, she was with her mother and her sister, but they were, they were just like worked to death. And she was uh, so traumatized. She, she, that, that, she, that, that sometimes like during class, she would just turn off the music and mm. start talking, you know,
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I can't imagine. I mean, even, um, I mean, you kind of mentioned like two potentially traumatizing aspects. There's the kind of trauma of things that you have undergone and there's also the trauma of things that you have done. And yeah, Uh, I think Jordan Peterson is the person I first heard the idea that he, he said something like a lot of times the people with severe PTSD, it's not because they've experienced like somebody has done something horrific to them. It's that they've done something horrific to somebody else that, you know, maybe they didn't know they were capable of. Um, and he, he talks a little bit about that, um, When he he kind of talks about what tended to happen when people gave up all of their morals and kind of just resorted to this, uh, you know, very like primitive form of every person for themselves is a lot of times they would just lose all sense of self-esteem and self-respect and, you know, degrade really quickly as a result of that.
1: Well, you know, this conversation is starting to get me down. So okay, let's move sure.
0: to the next section. <laughs> sure. Fair, fair <laughs> right. enough. It's heavy stuff. Yeah. It, it definitely yeah. Um, is not easy to talk about.
1: Because um, you know, in the next section, he talks about something that I can also relate to, and that's the anger that that then would pop up at, at odd times. And anger is a, a, an emotion that you don't like to recognize in yourself usually and here he talks a lot about how the abuse started to to make him it, 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 he started to become easily insulted and really feel the injustice of it. Mm. So so there's yeah. a slow there's a slow ramp up here, I guess, as we're examining it from uh, you know walking in in denial and then becoming um, hardened, but then it doesn't stop there. Then, then the person starts to regain his feelings. and the first thing he realizes is that this isn't fair,
0: yeah. so this is this is um we kind of entered phase phase three after the the prisoners have uh, been released or right. freed from the from the camps. So yeah, this desire for revenge. He says, quote, during this psychological phase, one observed that people with natures of more primitive kind, could not escape the influences of the brutality which had surrounded them in camp life. Now being free, they thought they could use their freedom licentiously and ruthlessly. The only thing that had changed for them was that they were now the oppressors instead of the oppressed. They became instigators, not objects of willful force and injustice. They justified their behavior by their own terrible experiences
1: well and if you look at his language there he uses words like primitive and licentious yeah and that's pretty judgmental it's pretty loaded there yeah for I mean, sure. it was like saying i really understand how this how somebody can incorporate you know of you after of themselves after being tortured as i don't know worthy of torture and then maybe the next step is uh i can deliver this torture to other people i mean you He doesn't seem to want to examine how that process works. And he just seems to want to judge it and judge it on a moral basis.
0: Yeah, I definitely, I definitely hear you on that. There's definitely some kind of moralizing language. And he even uh, says like, I guess there was a story of like one of the, one of these people he's talking about, they were just like stomping on uh, ex Nazis crops, like somehow got into this guy's field and was just stomping on his crops And frankly, even put a stop to that. And this guy's got like, geez, dude, like, you know, these people put me through hell and you won't even let me like stomp a few cabbages.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like the people who shoplift um, or loot, you know, the looting that goes on sometimes or Mm -hmm. the proposed looting that goes on sometimes um, where they say, you know, well, look, these stores are really big and they exploit us. So we're going to do a little exploitation of our own and. Appropriate, yeah. you know, spread the well. You you can kind of understand where that comes from, you
0: know? Yeah, for sure. And, and I'm surprised he doesn't kind of go into his more like understanding nature on this because he, he does kind of have more of a moralizing tone here. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it for him, the whole idea is, you know, if now that the tables have turned, we just do what the Germans did to us. Like we're no better than they are. I think that's a little bit of his his thought process there.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I was reading that um, after the war, uh, Austria, which is where he was, right? Mm-hmm. They were big into a sort of truth and reconciliation except leaving out the truth part. So they wanted to um, sort of renormalize things, sort of forgive and bring everybody back into the fold. And so there was this... Uh, was he Prime Minister Kurt Waldheim? Waldheim, whatever his name was, he he had been involved with the Nazis, but then um, I guess emblematic of the way Austria wanted to sort of rise from the ashes, um, he reinvented himself as a, you know a liberal, a person who was going to lead Austria into the into into better days, which is really constructive. But um Frankel was uh criticized for being associated with him.
0: Yeah. I I don't know a, a ton about Frankel uh historically as a as a person. I was listening to a, a podcast uh where his grandson was being interviewed and he, he was saying that he got a decent amount of kind of decent amount of flag just in general as being a little bit too apologetic of the Nazis. And his grandson was explaining, basically, his contention was World War II started because of this kind of way of thinking that the Jews were all the same and they were all evil. And he's, you know, kind of saying, if after World War II, we, we kind of come to the consensus that all Germans are the same, they're all evil, then we're no different. And that... Yeah. You know, he he talks about this, uh, I think, in the second section where that there are good and bad people amongst every group of people, uh, amongst every ethnicity. And he, he talks about I there's I think even a part he says verbatim, like amongst us prisoners, there were good and bad men amongst the guards. There were good and bad men. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, I and I think I'm just I'm just looking up. um this person that I referenced earlier, Kurt Waldheim, he was Secretary General of the United Nations from nineteen seventy-two to nineteen eighty one and president of Austria from nineteen eighty six to nineteen ninety-two. And then he was it came to light that he was um an intelligence officer in the Nazi Germany's Wehrmacht.
0: Mm.
1: So, um there were a lot of people like this, uh, you know, that um did you ever read Tin Drum by Gunther Grass? I haven't, no. Yeah. Well, it's a long book. If you ever want to read it, uh, set aside some time. Okay. <laughs> but he, you know, in that he, he people were, people were surprised to find that he had served in the SS mm. um, and that when it came out, it almost ruined his reputation. But you can kind of see what you're saying is right, that. You have to move on, and but you can't just move on by denying it mm. um, or covering it up. What you have to do is make some—you have to make some constructive moves that show that, despite the fact that you were what you were, you are—you can still contribute.
0: Mm. I, mean, I mean, I guess to tie it to to his his some of his other thoughts, he says at one point that a lot of prisoners felt like when they were in the camp, this was kind of the end, like all of their good days were behind them now. And he, you know, rather optimistically says, no, this is actually the beginning, or this is actually a huge opportunity to make something of this, you know, terrible Mm -hmm. circumstance. And he uses that word opportunity quite a bit. Uh, Mm -hmm. which I'd be curious how that's translated in other languages, but he uses the word opportunity over and over. Um, and just to even think of, you know, being sent to a concentration camp as an opportunity. I mean, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty controversial idea, but I think where he's going with it is in any circumstance, we have the opportunity in choosing how we respond that's you know one of his big ideas that runs through this we don't we don't get to choose what our circumstances are we don't get to choose our suffering but the one thing that can never be taken away from us is how we choose to respond in response to the suffering so yeah it, to me it seems like he uh he spends quite a lot of time coming down hard against the people who are kind of deterministic and and saying oh you we are all just kind of playing out our fate. It's all just a matter of, you know, there's no free will. He, he kind of says, no, we actually do have a choice in the matter of kind of how we choose to respond.
1: Well, you know that I always wondered about that. It's like, that's like a little, I was raised a Catholic and the idea that suffering is good is sort of pervasive there. Mm. Um, and the idea that it's how you face your suffering that defines, um, how good you are is is probably not a bad thing um he seems to take it a step farther though because he's portraying the inmates in in a sort of towards the end they're they're wandering in this um almost wilderness of doubt Hmm. and and um fear and 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 then he he comes he he says that you can come out of that by grasping the situation. But that well the only thing you he says the only thing you really have to grasp the situation with, to make meaning out of the situation with, is your suffering. Yeah. Well, okay, so that's where you lose me just a tiny bit. Mm. Right? Tiny y- bit.
0: Yeah. So to kind of uh bring him in on this a little bit uh he says quote we find we may find meaning in life even when confronted with a hopeless situation when facing a fate that cannot be changed there are situations in which one is cut off from the opportunity uh, to do one's work or even to enjoy one's life but what can never be ruled out is the unavoidability of suffering in accepting this challenge to suffer bravely Life has a meaning up to the last moment. And yeah, this is kind of where where we were talking a little bit about earlier, the idea that suffering with dignity or suffering with courage is a way of, it can be a way of deriving meaning.
1: Oh, sure. You know, I think that it's um, a little Jiminy Cricket, especially like if you're you know, I'm thinking like of my next door neighbor. She just passed away from pancreatic cancer. Mm. And they often frame that as a fight, you know, when you, when you have cancer that you fight and that you, you retain your, your meaning through suffering right up to the end. But when people are sick, the fact is that's pretty hard to do. When the body fails, that's, that's yeah. pretty hard. So what he's talking about is when you have all your faculties and you're young and you can face it, okay, you suffer, but you make meaning of it. But what about when you're so physically torn up that you don't have the capacity for
0: that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's it's definitely not the only way to, to derive meaning is through one's suffering. I think there's like more obvious ways and he talks on about them a little bit. Like there's, there's the, the kind of obvious ways of deriving meaning in your life of, uh, doing some kind of work, uh, that is meaningful to other people or help helpful to Mm -hmm. other people. And he, he talks also about like, uh, we can find meaning just through experience and, and loving somebody. That's another way we can find meaning. And he doesn't spend a whole lot of time in either of those two. I think probably mainly because they're mostly pretty self-explanatory. At least that first one is. Um, I mean, I think it's the way that most of us default to finding meaning. Okay, You find something that usually in our occupation that has some kind of purpose. Um, So maybe that's why he kind of disproportionately spends so much more time with finding meaning and suffering because it's been an issue for as long as humans have been humans. Is that like, well, yeah. what if you're in this completely hopeless situation where there is no chance to love somebody, where there is no chance to do meaningful work? Um and I was even thinking like like Foucault wrote Discipline and Punish about kind of that exact thing. Like, well, if you're a prisoner who is just condemned to this life sentence, you don't really have anything to look forward to. And, you know, Frankl talks a lot in here about hope, like there was a lot of hope of being released from the camp at some point or being freed by the allies. I think Foucault would say, well, what if you're somebody who has, you know, serving like three life sentences, then what? Um, And I think Frankl would probably say, well, then you have to find meaning in this third way, which is through facing your suffering in a kind of upright way.
1: No, you you know, you're making sense. I mean, there is an awful lot of emphasis in it towards the end here, but he does acknowledge that, that love and hope and and so on and constructive activity mean a lot. Yeah, you're right.
0: All right, cool. Well, let's, let's dive into section two a little bit here. Um, And maybe, you know, he he crosses over ideas quite a bit. So we might talk about a few other things from section one, but, um, Yeah. So section two, he, it's called logotherapy in a nutshell. So this is his uh, type of psychotherapy that he developed. And he says, according to logotherapy, striving to find meaning in one's life is the primary motivational force in man. And this is where he kind of differs from Freud and Adler and kind of broke from their schools of thought because Freud wants to say that striving after pleasure is the, mo- is the primary motivational force. And Adler would say it's striving for power. Uh-huh. And Frankel puts meaning at the top of the hierarchy and even says that if somebody is just striving after pleasure, then that is actually a symptom of their will to meaning being repressed in some kind of way. So he would say somebody who is an alcoholic or a sexaholic or a drug addict doesn't have any meaning in their life or hasn't found a way to kind of gratify this will to meaning and is therefore sick in some way. It's, it's a kind of uh, what he calls a eugenic neurosis, which right. uh, is another kind of term we should talk about. This differs from a psychological neurosis in that you can have a person who's otherwise healthy um, but has developed a neurosis due to a lack of meaning in their life. And he's saying, he says, as a therapist, he's like, I come I come across more instances of that in my office than I do the, um you know, maybe more traditional psychological neurosis. And also that the treatment is different. So if you're trying to treat somebody with a...
1: Neugenic neurosis.
0: Yeah, neugenic neurosis, if you're trying to treat them with a more kind of like Freudian therapy, then it's not going to do anything.
1: Well, the one thing you have to give Franco credit for is that he sort of was the forerunner of a lot of cognitive and behavioral therapies mm-hmm. that were popular in the fifties and sixties that I think are, you know, based a little bit more on common sense and, and um, what somebody's current situation is. And, even without Frankl's efforts, I think Freud's ideas, while they're influential, and in his his work sort of led the way. Um, no, nobody really worries anymore about staying in therapy for eight years to figure out exactly why your father was, mm. you know, such a big bad influence in your life or something.
0: Yeah, right. so he maybe shifted the the headlamp more towards like, hey, there's maybe a more common sense. Answer right in front of you. I think the other thing that Frankel says that's a little different. He has this idea called paradoxical intention.
1: Right, paradoxical intention.
0: Paradoxical intention. Thank you. Which is the idea that sometimes by striving after something or by focusing on it too intently, uh, you actually, you know, have less of a chance of attaining it. And he gives the kind of obvious example of sleep. Somebody who's like an insomniac really is trying to fall asleep. And the more harder they try, you know, the, the more difficult they make it. Um, uh, he gives a few other examples, like same with kind of impotence. Um, you know, the more harder you focus on, you know, getting an erection, if you're a man, uh, the, the harder you're making it to, to be, uh, no pun intended. um, <laughs> but he he then kind of carries this towards something like happiness, and he says, "The more that you strive and really try to be happy the m- the more it will elude you, and that really the solution is to focus on meaning, to focus on a purpose that is greater than yourself, and by doing that, the kind of happiness and self actualization will kind of come as a byproduct he says uh." what is called self-actualization is not an attainable aim at all for the simple reason that the more one would strive for it, the more he would miss it. In other words, self-actualization is possibly only a side effect of self-transcendence. Uh,
1: you know, that sounds great. I'm not going to argue with that.
0: <laughs> it, it, you can, you can poke holes in it. Please don't. don't.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, it's all good. You know, it, and anything anything that you can say that will will help people not be stuck it's a mm. use of term that's not too technical is good. you know
0: yeah i, I yeah, I mean, I, I I guess I'm drawn to that idea of you know there being a certain category of things where striving for them actually decreases your chance of getting them.
1: Yeah, when I was in school, I remember everybody was uh, big into taking notes, you know, when when I was in, I guess this would be high school. Scribble, 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 no matter what the teacher said. And I would just feel like if you just don't sit, just sit there and absorb it. Listen to what she's saying, let go, and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Now, that probably doesn't work for everyone. But it really worked for me, that sense of like, don't try to capture every nuance of every word, but just sort of soak it in and then and yeah. then you'll have, yeah.
0: So yeah, it seems like a lot of these are tied to a certain certain amount of like anxiety or, like you said, need for control. Like, what if I don't capture everything the teacher says? What if I don't capture? And then you're so preoccupied with that thought that you're not actually hearing her.
1: Right. You're not hearing her and you're not giving your brain enough space to... Not only hear her, but sort of make something out of it as you listen, because there's an awful lot to sort of you're constructing what you're hearing. And the most efficient way to do that is to just let your brain work, because it, it doesn't usually work pretty well. Yeah. So so I get that. Yeah. I like that.
0: Um, Maybe we can talk about the meaning of life.
1: Oh, yeah. Why don't we do that?
0: Why <laughs> not? Um. So I, I found this comparison really, really awesome. He He's talking about the question, what is the meaning of life? He says, quote, to put the question in general terms would be comparable to the question posed to a chess champion. Tell me, master, what is the best move in the world? There simply is no such thing as the best or even a good move apart from a particular situation in a game and the particular personality of one's opponent. The same holds for human existence. I thought that was kind of cool. He's kind of saying like, it's, it's basically a bad question.
1: Yeah. He's also saying that context is, is, is really what matters. Yeah. So you can't say what's best unless you know what kind of environment you're talking about.
0: Right. And he says it's, it's different for individual to individual, but it's also different for one indi- individual at different parts of his or her life. Right. Right. And I, I mean, I can relate for sure. I think the things that gave my life meaning when I was 16 was like practicing drums for eight hours a day. <laughs> like there was, um, and now, you know, it's maybe doing this podcast or, you know, uh, other things in my life. Like it, I think what he's saying is it can change throughout and it will change.
1: Yeah, it will change. Yeah.
0: yeah. Have you found that to be the the case? You've had different uh different meanings in your life
1: well you know maybe I, th- I think for me because I'm an, I'm an artist well that, that's what I call myself but I've always been engaged in some sort of artistic practice mm. so that's been consistent and it still is so even though now I just paint these silly little landscapes that are six inches by six inches just to do it yeah it's still artistic practice and so that's That actually hasn't changed. I see that as, as fundamental to who I am. Hmm. And if you took that away, I guess I could I could go to plan B, whatever that is, but I don't like to think about it.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm, I guess I'm drawn to this idea. He says, uh, these tasks and therefore the meaning of life differ from man to man and from moment to moment. Thus, it is possible to define the meaning of life in a general way. Questions about the meaning of life can never be answered by sweeping statements.
1: Yeah, I, I like that, especially the, the emphasis on the stage of life that you're at, because I really do believe that, that people do go through predictable stages in their lives, and that it's, it's important to realize who you are at that moment. You know, when you're busy building a career or having a family or, and then you're a parent or whatever it is, that's a particular stage you're mentoring, you're doing and your activities have to be appropriate to that stage of life. If they're not, it does make unhappiness. So, for example, if you decided to start a family and now you're a parent and you suddenly feel like to find meaning in life, I have to play drums eight hours a day. Yeah. See, that creates a tension because you're not.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. I've even noticed in the last maybe three or four years more of a desire to, to kind of give back or to to share my knowledge with others. Um, mm-hmm. Which when I was yeah when I was definitely when I was sixteen, but even throughout most of my twenties, I I just wanted to learn and consume it all. Right. He says. Also, though, this is this was this kind of puzzled me a little bit. So I'm just going to read this and we can kind of unpack it. He says, no situation repeats itself and each situation calls for a different response. Sometimes the situation in which a man finds himself may require him to shape his own fate by action. At other times, it is more advantageous for him to make use of an opportunity for contemplation and to realize assets in this way. Sometimes man may require simply to accept fate to bear his cross. And then he says, every situation is distinguished by its uniqueness And there is always only one right answer to the problem posed by the situation at hand.
1: You had me until the end.
0: Yeah, that's exactly that. So that last sentence, I was kind of scratching my head because he he tends to say, okay, well, you know, it depends on the situation you're in, what the meaning of life or what the right move is going to be. But then he says, but there's always only one right answer.
1: Well, I wonder what he means by that. Does he, does he mean that, um, the answer is determined by all your experiences up to that point and so in a way the answer would be unique to you at that point in life there is only one right answer so it's not like the right answer comes from authority it it, it's sort of a natural outgrowth it's what he's saying it's a natural outgrowth of where you've been who you are and what you what you're doing now
0: but that kind of sounds like it's just fate playing out where it seems like the rest of his philosophy is very much like an active, like we get to make the decision, like, cause, cause he has the idea somewhere else that yeah. kind of we have, we have good and evil potential potentialities within us. And at every moment we're kind of able to choose one or the other. It seems maybe that's where he's going with that. We always kind of, uh, have the option You know, I guess the the right choice was always going to be the the righteous choice. Maybe
1: You're right. It does sound deterministic. Yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah. It's a complicated man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, that was kind of the end of my notes. But were there anything that we didn't get to or that we kind of skipped over that you want to circle back to? No.
1: Why don't we end on this? There's a quote. It's right. Um in the section called Essence of Existence Mm. and it says live as if you were living already for the second time and as if you had acted the first time wrongly as wrongly as you are about to act now. So he's saying live as if you were living already for the second time. Now that's interesting from a person who was released from a concentration camp because if that isn't a second chance, I don't know what is, right? Mm. So you're living for the second time and as if you had acted the first time as wrongly as you are about to act now. I don't understand the phrasing there.
0: I took it to mean, imagine that you've already lived your current life once and that during that last life, you made the wrong decision in the circumstance you find you're in yourself in right now, what would the right decision be?
1: It's just, uh, radical. Yeah.
0: And it's kind of a variation of uh, Nietzsche's eternal recurrence.
1: Right. It does sound that way. Yeah.
0: yeah. But I mean, that's an interesting kind of variation of that, uh, that thought experiment. So what do you think that prompts a person to do by imagining that they made the wrong decision in their past life?
1: Well, you know, I think it, it it's sort of saying that people do get caught in repeating the same... It, you don't have to be mystical about it. it, it they, you get caught in repeating the same patterns. Mm. And and so if this is advice to at some point stop and, and um, change the pattern, then I, I would say it's pretty good advice usually. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. for sure. And I think this this quote and the kind of Nietzsche's idea for me, at least personally, they always kind of remind me of like, oh yeah, this, this is the actual play. This is not the dress rehearsal. <laughs> Cause I think we can get caught into thinking of like, oh yeah, life is going to begin like once X, Y, or Z happens. And that's kind of saying like, right. no, this is, you know, you're, you're in it. Right. Um, well cool. This was um this was so great. And uh thank, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad we got to do it. Thanks for listening to Unpacking Ideas. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or scroll down and write us a review or give us a rating. I know that all takes a little bit of effort, but it really helps with the algorithm so that more people can discover the show. So, thanks for doing that in advance. If you would like to get in touch with me, please visit unpackingideas.com, or if you would like to see what's coming up on the podcast, uh, visit unpackingideas.com forward slash podcast, and there I post links to articles and essays and books that we'll be discussing on future podcast episodes. All right, guys, that's going to do it for today. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next time.